and welcome to this episode of the New Voices Podcast, where I am recording today from the suburbs of Washington, D.C. My name is Ray Zong, a D.C. chapter member, think tanker, and your host for today's episode. Our guest today is Shazida Ahmed, who is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of California, Berkeley School of Information, and a visiting researcher at NYU's AI Now Institute. Her research examines how tech firms and the Chinese government are collaboratively constructing the country's social credit system, as well as AI usage in emotion detection and Chinese courtrooms. She was a pre-doctoral fellow for the Center of International Security and Cooperation, the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Shida, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ray. It's really great to be here. Great having you. Um, just So just to start off, could you tell our listeners in your own words your recent writing and research? Sure. So I would say the through line across a lot of my research is this interest in relationships between the state and technology firms in developing technology and applying it for uses that are related to governance. So with my work on the social credit system, um, it's sort of obvious there what the connection is to governance. But I've also looked at things that are largely developed in the private sector, like emotion recognition technology. Um, what are the assumptions underpinning some of these technologies? How do tech companies and the government both work to legitimize them, even when, say, their scientific underpinnings or certain assumptions that they're built on have been proven to be shaky or, you know, scientifically inaccurate. It's been a big year in China for technology policy changes, with new data standards and increased corporate scrutiny for China's big data firms. We've seen a lot of the big companies that are doing a lot of data research portfolios. We've certainly seen, you know, Tencent, Alibaba sort of get put under the microscope. Among all these changes going on, what do you think you've observed as the sort of most consequential and far-ranging changes? Among the changes that I've been observing, I think none of them feel sudden. And so that's something to also point out as you ask about far-ranging, right? Like a lot of what we're seeing now has been building up for years. And there's this kind of moment of clarity where if you've been following these companies for a very long time, you can point to sort of past incidents as precursors of what we're seeing now. So, you know, when you look at Ant Financial, you know, there have been years of issues with micro lending, largely in like the peer to peer lending space where, um, you know, you'd have people taking out loans across a variety of uh, micro lenders, taking out loans to pay off their loans. Then you had regulators come in and try to break that up. Um, Banks were taking on a lot of risk while feeling increasingly obsolete because of companies like Ant Financial. So, you know, as kind of everyone who's used, say, Alipay in China will note, um, people don't really go to brick and mortar banks anymore, right? There's so much you can do in Alipay and in similar apps. Um, you know, consumer credit scores that they were offering, and they've since had to kind of repackage um, to not step on sort of the people with Bank of China's toes, right, that used inappropriate data inputs, there was a lot of um, kind of like state ire around that and trying to push these companies to either revise what they said their technology did or just not do it anymore. Um, so, you know, and financial has been a big one in the news. Look at Didi, for example, also, right, like the everything that happened after the IPO. I think it's really interesting to see 
a data security argument come out of that from Chinese regulators, and then to see that same argument used by, say, for example, um, I saw that two British members of parliament from kind of polar opposite ends of the political spectrum were making a similar argument because Didi was trying to expand in a few cities across the UK, cities that specifically had sort of larger Chinese diaspora populations. Um, and you saw these MPs say, well, you know, the, this company could be using UK citizens' data in ways that are untoward. Should we trust them? Should we let them continue to expand into our market? And it's just interesting to me to see that, like, Chinese regulators were also saying, hey, look at Didi. They, this is a national security concern if they IPO abroad and, you know, U.S. regulators can audit them, access data that we consider sensitive on anything from traffic to, you know, Chinese users' data. And then the final one I've been watching is also Meituan. So for quite a while, there's been growing public awareness in China about the poor working conditions of people in the gig economy, specifically Meituan drivers, right? There's been labor unrest, you know, there's wonderful research. From Especially people. during COVID, right? Because they everybody's buying stuff online. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so there's probably, I could only imagine, right, there's more awareness of hey, what's happening to the drivers that are bringing me food or groceries or whatever it is? There are all kinds of interesting forms of labor protest in platforms like this. Um, there's research by Eli Friedman and Chu Xuan Liu about drivers using means of resistance, like just not logging into these apps and taking in the work, and it puts pressure on middle managers. So that, combined with public dissatisfaction about the unsafety of this work, kind of pressured regulators over time to do something. So with the Meituan example, you know, recently the Chinese Ministry of Human Resources and Social Security, along with seven other government agencies, issued some guidelines about gig work and the State Administration of Market Regulation did the same. And between these two sets of guidelines, you know, they covered everything from pegging drivers' wages to local minimum wage where they're working, um, creating things like unions that would be started within the companies so that they're essentially trying to curb dissent from within and have it be something the company manages negotiations with workers, lengthening the amount of time in the work, work dispatch algorithms, providing things like social security and insurance. So there's been, like I said, there's been a lot of research over the years showing us that we could end up at this point. Something had to happen because there was a combination of regulatory frustration that companies could get away with ignoring certain directives for this long, and that the public could continue to be dissatisfied and unhappy. Yeah, and there's definitely this sort of morality-flavored sort of approach to it. This morning I was looking at an article that was discussing how a policeman used, uh, you know, hours-long, long-home influencer-style live streams to hawk a anti-fraud app to get people to download it onto their phones so that they could, you know, use the data for, for policing purposes. So it's interesting how it's not just regulatory action, but also the usage of consumer technology to better shape the content and how people use it. Definitely. And as you brought up morality, something else I've been thinking about. So I'm co-authoring a piece on the two recent 
kind of policy documents around managing algorithms in China with a, uh, my colleague Catherine Tai at MIT. And, you know, a, about a year, year and a half ago, I, want, I started research on just the simple question of what counts as algorithmic discrimination in China, because there's so much written about this in English, whether it's racial or gendered, you know, ageist, all kinds of protected characteristics about people or sensitive attributes about people that um, when algorithms are used to make decisions about them, end up reproducing historical biases against them. And so I was curious about if any researchers in China had written about the equivalent happening in China. So, you know, looking through tons of papers in Mandarin, trying to figure out like what how does this translate? And what was interesting is so many of the papers were about classic examples from the United States, maybe some from Europe, but the lens was very rarely turned back onto China. In fact, the most papers I found that I felt did that were talking about price discrimination. So the idea that, say, you and your friend are both trying to call a DD at the same time, but your friend gets a better rate, even though they're going the same distance, has the app profiled your data enough that they've figured out, you know, your friend has a lower willingness to pay, so they're going to get a lower price. Um, and there's been a lot of kind of Chinese netizen conversations about this. So at the time, when I started looking into this, I thought, oh, not that many people are talking about it. I wonder if this is something regulators will even care about. And now, you know, we have these two docs that came out um, from the Cyberspace Administration of China, right? There was one called, um, you know, DigiChina translated it as uh, Internet Information Service Algorithmic Recommendation Management Provisions. And provisions is key here because it's a set of suggestions that are open for public comment. It was specifically about recommender algorithms. So when you think about an app like TikTok, you know, you watch a few videos, for example, right? I love Alaskan Malamute dogs. If I watch a few videos about Alaskan Malamute dogs, TikTok knows to keep serving me videos about this kind of dog. Um, yeah. And I, I recently moved. So guess who's getting like 30,000 couch ads on Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're helpful, at least. So that's kind of one surprising thing that this document came out and there's been a lot of conversation around it. And, you know, at the time I thought, OK, these are just provisions. We'll see where they go. They can easily be changed before they kind of ratchet up into some kind of law or like policy that's fixed. But then right on the tail of that, the CAC also put out a document China Law Translate has translated as guiding opinions on strengthening the overall governance of Internet information service algorithms. And so that's not just recommender algorithms. It's a really broad swath. And so going back to the morality point, there, there are very specific points in both of these that talk about the kind of technical side, the sort of labor that will have to be put in, the kind of content you don't want people seeing um, and you don't want to harm people's rights. And there's a lot, then on the other side, there's a lot of vague moralizing language about disseminating um, positive energy, right? There's a lot about social morality, core socialist values, um, science and ethics or technological ethics. And you know, these are always nebulous terms, and they're going to be really interesting to see how tech companies will be put on the hook for essentially enforcing them and having to make subjective decisions about what it looks like to put that into practice. And in some cases, they do it, you know, ahead of time, right, just to sort of over self-censor, just to make sure they're not put on the radar. Definitely. I think what's interesting about this is it could potentially raise really hard questions about their core business models. Right. Like one of the things that's really interesting is um, 
the call for algorithms to be explainable. And, you know, I read that and I thought about how this is basically a whole field, right? Especially with machine learning, there's countless papers on how do you actually make algorithms explainable when there are so many that essentially you can't explain how you got the results you did. Um, And I just, I wondered when I read this, what Chinese regulators grasp of how algorithms work was. And if this was something where it was kind of like, I don't fully understand this, but you have to do what I say, because this is such an unpredictable technological variable that it kind of doesn't matter if some of the most exciting new developments in the field are things companies might want to test out on their users. If they lead to an unpredictable and undesirable outcome, they shouldn't be used at all. Um, And a lot of the commentary I see around these is that the Chinese government is doing things Silicon Valley, quote unquote, wouldn't dare to do or doesn't have the strength. Usually from Silicon Valley, right? Just to try to egg the U.S. government into giving them a longer leash. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is at the heart of kind of this like tech Cold War posturing, I think, or AI arms race posturing is please don't regulate us because we don't. You don't want us to be like China, right? This has been the kind of refrain. Drop for, antitrust or China wins. Yeah, which, you know, where, where's the logic there? I'm not quite following. And so I I, re- I read these kind of wondering what will happen. How many of these will be enforced? How much of this will be selectively enforced when the government wants to make a point, uh, you know, about a specific company? Um, how enforceable are these? You know, there are some really interesting things in there about how netizens um, will have reporting mechanisms. And I just wonder, you know, how many netizens understand when something they see is the result of an algorithm serving it to them? Um, So I'm just curious also about like public education that will be done around this. And again, for me, this was kind of a shock to go from a year, year and a half ago to, oh, okay, they're talking about this a little bit in Chinese academia to, oh, here to very intense documents full of so much to unpack and watch. So yeah, it, it's not the most user-friendly process to unpack, yes, to, and to participate in. Yeah, I would say not. And I'm curious to see how they anticipate bringing users back into the fold and making people feel like they have agency to call out some of these uses, if that's even the goal, right? There's um, provisions in there about reporting to certain regulators about when platforms violate these new um, kind of regulations. And I'm just curious about if those reports will be made public and we'll kind of get to peer under the hood of what kind of goes wrong or violates certain policies at tech companies. Like this is something it's been pretty hard to do in the United States. I mean, you have organizations like Ranking Digital Rights that look at if companies like Facebook and Twitter publish transparency reports about like when they took content down. You know, it's it'll be interesting to see if something like that is mandated to come out of Chinese tech. It's really interesting that we've sort of struck on the topic of, you know, user friendliness, because so many scams in, in China, for example, will target the elderly. If you have a reporting mechanism that elder tech users can't use, like if my grandma can't figure it out, then they don't get certain types of data into their anti fraud app that Douyin police guy is, is hawking. So it's like how they're sort of building the feedback mechanism you, you seem to be making the point is, is really going to be key. Ironically, I remember sort of seeing this line of thinking from Audrey Tang, who's Taiwan, uh, 
tech bureaucrat in, in Taiwan about collecting feedback. <laughs> Switching gears, let's talk a little bit about the issue of surveillance technology. So in a conversation with Jennifer Pan on you know, how social programs can be used to surveil China's population, you sort of talk about surveillance deputies. I think that's a really interesting concept because it really brings together the concept of the analog and how you know analog players and figures factor into surveillance. What do you think is the significance of these actors in Chinese politics and society? I was really excited by this concept the first time I heard of it as well. So it came from a paper by Lauren Kilgore and Karen Levy at Cornell um, that isn't published yet, but they have an article in the New York Times where they talked about the example of college students, right? And colleges asking students to report on their peers for violating campus COVID policies. So it's essentially um, deputizing surveillance to ordinary citizens, right? That normally government or law enforcement would do. And, you know, especially when hearing about and reading this paper, I just could think of so many examples in China, right? Not just the ones you mentioned, and certainly in Jen Pan's research on welfare distribution in China and how, you know, at kind of a neighborhood level, neighborhoods can be divided into grids and there are people called block captains who are visually observing their neighbors and kind of making assessments about their personal finances and their home life in determining whether or not they should get welfare. Um, you know, an example I thought of from a while back, actually, the Wall Street Journal had an article on what they were kind of calling snitch apps. There was one called Safe Zhejiang, uh, and it failed. It was an app where people could report on their neighbors for anything ranging from leaky faucets to domestic disputes, traffic incidents, you know, environmental kind of hazards, at kind of a grab bag of violations you could report uh, in exchange for discounts and rewards from established brands and apps. Um, and of course, this people didn't use it. There are people who don't want to be snitches or don't care. Or, you know, there were even some complaints that these apps are tied to local government who care about when we report about really minor things, but when we report serious things that require action from the government, um, you know, not a quick fix. It doesn't happen. Not to mention, uh, and Jen Pan's book and Sheena Grayton's research, there's a lot of really good work showing how the interests of local officials who are looking to be promoted are very much tied up in these reporting mechanisms. So if everyone were to use this app, you'd have a just deluge probably of incidents reported. And then to say, okay, well, we, we solved you know, 10% of these. Well, if you have even more of them to start with, then the amount of them you'll have resolved is lower. So it makes it harder for you to be promoted and look good at your job. Um, and it's really interesting that I hadn't, other than that article, it wasn't until I was doing research on emotion recognition technologies that I saw a reference to the Feng Chao experience. And so this was drawn from um, kind of the, from Maoism, basically, that people would observe their neighbors and you could kind of report on them if they were doing things that were considered immoral or kind of broke with norms. Um, it's interesting that tech companies are trying, were for some period of time trying to capitalize on this, right? The same article that talks about the snitch apps talks about how companies like Alibaba, um, you know, other big Chinese tech companies were at a conference on the new Feng Chao experience. And so it makes sense, right? They're trying to capitalize on 
governments are interested in this. This is something easy enough to set up because a lot of the reporting would be done by users. And it doesn't seem to have taken off, but I saw companies still try to use this again when talking about police using emotion recognition technology to interrogate criminal suspects. Um, And we can kind of get into what the emotion recognition piece is if you want. But basically, to me, the step back is, you know, a lot of these technologies are not as panoptic um, or all-seeing as people treat them as they are. And there aren't enough state security personnel to ensure the total surveillance that we've been led to believe exists in China. So essentially, ordinary people at a local community level are, are made to do this work. And I was really interested in what motivates them to do it. That might be sort of a question for future research. Yeah, it it seems like it really comes down to, you know, the provision and sort of almost stewardship of like local public works, given the degree that this is, you know, about responsibilities that local governments can, can have to, you know, people, people in the community. So not like big picture politics stuff, so much as, you know, road repairs, pipe bursts, so on and so forth. Sort of scaling this up toward big picture U.S.-China relations. We've seen this rhetoric of, you know, a U.S.-China, you know, tech arms race and a new technology cold war decoupling on the, on the covers of magazines. And this is something that you've been, you know, conducting research on at NYU. So what works and what doesn't about this analogy? I am personally opposed to all of this rhetoric, and um, I would just say there are some parallels we're seeing or ways that, you know, the researchers I work with at the AI Now Institute and I talk about history repeating itself unnecessarily. Um, One is a striking parallel to anti-Japanese sentiment in the 1980s. So um, my former colleague Colin Garvey has this great paper on how um, the Japanese government and a series of research institutions there in the 80s developed something called the fifth generation computing system. And it's basically trying to develop artificial intelligence to benefit society by augmenting um, labor in an aging workforce, thinking about ways to help care for that aging population. Um, But you had a few figures associated with the U.S. military who basically framed this as aggression and an attempt to develop a better military AI system in Japan than the United States. And this led to ratcheting up DARPA funding for military AI. Um, Ultimately, the Japanese fifth generation computing system program, it never even achieved the goals it set out to because it became kind of internationally maligned. And that was the AI arms race or, you know, yeah, the first AI arms race, basically, um, that a lot of people don't know about. So I think some of the lessons we could take from that experience have been lost. Um, we're also seeing an overhyping and overpromising of AI's transformative power at the expense of considering the social context. Um, there's so much, there are so many accounts written as if this were being developed in a vacuum. Um, and it's, again, eerie to see some of the parallels to Colin's work about the 80s, where you had figures like, you know, Evan Feigenbaum, who was a professor at Stanford, and others over-promising that AI was going to change every aspect of life. And, you know, we'd never understand reality would be (laughs) kind of split open and unrecognizable. Um, And of course, it's different now, right? Because we do have 
applications of AI that are closer to everyday life than then. Uh, and yet some of the same trenchant problems we've always had are still here. Um, I can, yeah, as sort of the last point, I mean, there's so many of these parallels, but the last point is, it's been interesting, right? If you look at how the internet developed and the way we talked about it politically has kind of come back around since the 1990s. So there was always this paradigm of free and open democratic technology um, that would, you know, make the world <laughs> kind of remake the world and democracy's image. And then slowly there was this recognition that that wasn't really happening. So there was a framing of free and open societies versus closed authoritarian ones. And we're seeing it happen again, you know, with phrases like digital authoritarianism. Um, I, I kind of am made to think about this, especially when I see arguments that essentially boil down to surveillance technology developed in democracies being somehow inherently democratic, whereas the same technologies used in autocracies would not be. And when you get as in the weeds as I do with a lot of these technologies and trying to tell stories about what kinds of transformations they are enabling and the kinds that they're not, um, it doesn't fall into such neat categories. No, and I would also say that one really distinct thing about China that complicates this is it's not it's not purely a story of fear mongering because of the extent of you know how active. The, the Chinese state is in, you know, surveillance ambitions. So it, it, there's no, it's not like sports. You don't have a clear rooting interest, except there's always the rooting interest of more equitable technology standards for users. But that's not a snappy slogan. And thus, it's very difficult to really get people behind. Absolutely. Or the idea that you have to pick sides when you're frustrated by both sides has always been, uh, you know, the difficulty in doing my work. And I'm constantly trying to ask, what are ways of framing this so people don't feel that they have to pick sides, but they can kind of call for a refusal, right? There's so much great work recently on refusing to develop and deploy certain types of technology. Um, and I'd love to see that kind of come into conversation more to complicate this US-China AI arms race or tech cold war. Yeah, and a lot of this is tech workers that are speaking up about different types of standards within within their corporations. Unfortunately, this is much more difficult for people inside DD or Tencent, which is unfortunate because a lot of times I'm like, man, I really wonder what ByteDance workers think of the nuts and bolts of the things they're developing, but it's, yeah. So in your work, you've also talked about how technology is, is being standardized within uh, Chinese law enforcement. So how have some of these issues in sort of modernizing uh, the, like China's smart courts or automated judicial processes been kind of resolved? And, you know, what, what things are still, you know, kinks to be worked out? So there's been a lot written about smart courts in Mandarin. Um, this is a topic that, you know, I would say 2016, maybe even a little earlier, people have been writing about extensively. Um, and it was really exciting to dive into that literature because there are many examples, like empirical examples of courts around China that, you know, everything from the moment you kind of fill out paperwork and are deciding whether or not you even want to file a case, you can 
sort of feed it into a system that will compare it to cases similar to yours semantically, right? And um, Or like that the details of the cases were similar to yours and can spit out a probability that you will win the case, right? That is just for that to be the first step for some people and essentially guide you towards whether or not you want to seek justice in the courts or not is really fascinating to me. Um, you know, I conducted research on smart courts with my colleague um, Daishin at Peking University's Law School, and I was really interested in a lot of literature in the kind of U.S. field of like fair, transparent, accurate machine learning. Um, it really focuses on examples in the United States. And I was so interested in if those same principles are what people are advocating for in China or how these technologies are being designed in China, especially when it comes to courts where fairness is sort of supposed to be an assumed necessary quality you have to have in the judicial process. Um, and, and efficiency, I would say, is an additional quality we see come up so much in the literature coming out of China that you don't always see in the United States. You know, anyone who's lived in China and gone through any kind of bureaucratic process knows that it can be an enormous time sink. Um, and um, and I can't even imagine with the courts, you know, just thinking about people I know who were deterred from seeking redress that way because it would have taken so much time. Um, so, you know, there are technologies like smart recording pens that, you know, allegedly use natural language processing and help transcribe spoken language into text. You know, there's so many interesting questions around that. Like if you think about all the different dialects people speak, to what extent are those represented? Are there possibilities that errors can be introduced into the transcript and how would that affect the proceeding of the case? Um, I've seen examples in Chinese news media about um, systems where judges can essentially just kind of pull up you know, scrub through and pull up particular moments of um, surveillance footage, right, and, and bring those as evidence in a case and have the that broadcast to the whole court. Um, so there's really strong kind of back-end search capabilities for um, essentially assembling this kind of evidence. It's really interesting because it's happening at the same time that the judiciary is going through a lot of professionalization changes. So there are exams and other ways of culling judges. So you have essentially fewer judges who through a variety of methods are seen as more professional or just better suited to this work, which is so interesting, right? Because there are judges who might have decades of experience who might not have made it through that process and are cut, um, but the same caseload. And so there's this argument that you need this technology to deal with the caseload, but there it's really a large experiment, the results of which are not necessarily clear to me and I'm not sure what data we would need to see to understand if this is net positive or if there are tons of people who fall through the cracks for any number of reasons. Um, and with all of these systems, right, whether it's in China or anywhere, the question that people should always be looking at is, are people who were already vulnerable in these processes getting a raw deal for totally new reasons that are unaccountable and untraceable. And it's interesting that you, you've been mentioning, you know, do judge, how are judges adapting to this? Because it really piggybacks off the problem of cadre incentives, yes. cadre promotion, how they are sort of incentivized to their own general processes, more fair, transparent, and efficient. So it's, it's all uh, just, you know, it, like you said earlier, it's, 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 it's been a long simmering sort of issue, right? Yeah. I mean, so one thing too, is a lot of cases are live streamed, like court proceedings are live streamed. And I think it would be so interesting 
to do research on that footage when and where it's made public and even the choice of which cases are live streamed that's you know that's that's not an automated decision right there's a sort of consideration of oh you know one of the qualities is it's supposed to be of like educational value to the public and i'm really curious there's so much of this that is claimed to be you know automated and technology driven but there's still so many political incentives under the hood that are shaping what gets shared with the public and how um and it's it is interesting you know we found a few examples of judges who gave quotes for papers or newspapers saying things like, oh, I really liked the system because it made a suggestion for the outcome of a case that was very similar to what I would choose with my own professional judgment. And there were some systems developed by some companies in conjunction with judges and their expertise. Um, but I'm not so clear on what inputs they gave. And there are also components of these systems that are measuring their performance um, how similar or different are the decisions they're making to decisions they made previously? How efficiently are they going through their workload? So while this is on the one hand being portrayed as helping them, on the other, it's also judging them. And so even just being seen as hostile or averse to it could be problematic for judges, right? They're really caught in a bind. Yeah, it's um, certainly a sort of ongoing give and take process. Um, I have one last question before we wrap up. So uh, one thing that I've been really curious about in the U.S.-China sort of surveillance supply chain is in the interests in emotion reading by, you know, commercial entities, education, auto manufacturers, etc. Is this an area where the U.S. and China might have this symbiotic relationship where they're sort of developing technologies in parallel even if, you know, their diplomatic relationships aren't good, are we seeing surveillance sort of blossom within the United States and China, even though they're maybe in a technological cold war? Do, does surveillance sort of grow on both sides anyway? Or in fact, you know, are they still kind of feeding into each other? So there are some ways in which it's symbiotic and it's kind of unfortunate because, um, actually one example I can think of. So my colleague Vidushi Marda and I um, published our research on emotion recognition technologies in China and kind of a potential international law and human rights violations of them. And one company that we found across all of our use cases for that report, and there are other use cases we're working on in future work, but companies that were deploying this technology in education, public security, and driving safety, um, you know, there was one that consistently brought up we use Microsoft Azure Cloud um, to store our data and then be able to run, you know, essentially um, surveillance camera footage of people's faces and then make assessments about their emotional states. So there is, people don't really talk about the infrastructure that a lot of U.S. companies have provided on top of which these applications can be developed. Um, and, and there is a parallel development, right? There are uses of emotion recognition technologies in the United States for things like focus groups around advertising, um, retail, companies like HireVue and Pymetrics that are, um, you know, using video interview programs to 
choose people for hiring in, in certain jobs and they'll kind of look at things like um, facial expressions for determining if people are quote unquote charismatic. So in our report, you know, spoiler alert, we're very much opposed to these technologies. My colleague did a really amazing job at pulling up a kind of literature review, especially recent research on how these technologies rely on outdated, in many cases, racist and unscientific ideas about emotions, right? The idea that the emotions you feel internally have a one-to-one match on your face, your body movements. Um, Which gets really, really antsy if it, if and when it's used in, you know, those like predictive policing tools or like, oh, you know, we can predict who will do a crime later. Uh, absolutely. Sure. Especially what, you know, if the thing that was interesting in the research is there was very little acknowledgement of the research debunking the bases on which these technologies are built. There was a lot of pulling from theories from the 60s and 70s that much of recent research would not draw from. And I find that really curious because I know that a lot of the young Chinese engineers and researchers who are writing the papers, building the technology, go to international conferences and presumably can see that some of this work is no longer um, you know, it, it's been kind of disproven. I'm really, this is something, you know, when we were working on it, and we've gotten a lot of questions since about, well, what kind of ethics training is happening? And I don't have an answer to that. Certainly, I'm not in China right now to do research and talk to people about it. But um, it's profitable, right? We found 27 companies across three use cases, companies that were saying, you know, we can provide this technology, we are providing this technology in airports, bus stations, public places. We've you know, there were stories claiming, hey, we use this in a subway. And what's interesting is they'll make grandiose claims about being able to catch terrorists. But when you actually look at the examples they're willing to disclose about who got apprehended, it was somebody using two Shenzhenzheng, like two ID cards, or somebody with, you know, contraband goods in their bag, but of course, they wouldn't say whatever it was. Um, so you're using something built on really questionable foundations for potentially very, you know, dangerous judgments to make about someone, right? There, we looked at these completely different cases as well, right? Education is in many ways different from public security and, and driving safety because we wanted to understand in the social context of how this is being used, what does it change about the way people relate to each other? In education, um, we had lots of examples of both in-person and online schools that would use this as a way of monitoring students, you know, attention, let's say, um, and would ultimately try to kind of relate it back to how you assess their performance as a student overall, which feeds into parents' competitive fears about, you know, is my child doing well in school? If this is a new metric that matters, how can I monitor it? How can I make them more attentive? But it also got flipped back on teachers and became a form of workplace surveillance of, you know, if these two teachers have the exact same sets of students, but one set of them have facial expressions that our system reads as happy more often than the other, that person's a better teacher. And of course, you have places like Amazon and of all places, this salad chain called Sweet Green. They're like, oh, yeah, we're just going to slap some bracelets on our workers to see if they're happy. About <sighs> it's like, it's like, yeah, it's have, have you considered this the magical technological solution called worker benefits? 
Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I guess you have to sort of go back to analog thinking a little bit as opposed to put more cameras on things, right? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And on that note, uh, I think this is a this is a good place to wind down a very interesting and thought-provoking conversation and really really excited to see what kind of research you're doing next. So, uh, one question that we typically ask for guests is recommending a show, a book or a film that has inspired you lately. I'm writing my dissertation, so I haven't had as much time for fun things. But um, one thing that's nice about that is kind of eliminating choice. And so I really love this Italian author, Natalia Ginsburg. Um, and I've just been trying to read my way through everything she's written that I can get. And it's great. So is it literary fiction? It is, yeah. And a lot of it centers around post-World War II life in Italy. Yeah, mm. and it's great. Awesome. Um, right now I'm reading this nonfiction memoir slash nature writing book called Two Trees Make a Forest by Jessica J. Lee. It's a, a Taiwanese-Canadian author, and I do like the title, how uh, it alludes to the character for Lin Forest. And just, just like, it has the energy of, like, a really nice sort of dry, cool hike. Which is kind of ironic given how humid Taiwan is, but you know what? I'll <laughs> suspend suspend belief for that. We also like to ask, you know, what kind of self care activities are you taking part in to make sure that you're doing well for yourself? Well, I'm glad you brought up forests. I really like hiking, and I try to do it as much as I can on the weekends. After spending a lot of time shut in in the pandemic, I've started to reemerge and try new things. So I've been really enjoying playing badminton with friends, going bouldering. Um, I'm really tense from all the typing, so I've been trying to get massages more often. Um, and I drink a ton of tea. It is very calming. How about you? So for as for me, you may have heard the little noises in the back. I apologize. I am in week two of owning a new cat. It's a one-and-a-half-year-old calico mm -hmm. named Yuebing. And, uh, you know, pet ownership is, uh, is, is really interesting, but it's also, it's like, oh, this little, this little fuzzy gremlin is sharing her life with me. That's, that's a great experience. Cause, you know, with cats, it's like, they choose, they have to choose to sort of share their life with you. And it's kind I of like that. a privilege in that way. Well, thank you so much for joining us today for an exciting conversation. Uh, the new voices, uh, podcast is the podcast of the New Voices Network, where we publish and have conversations with different types of specialists in China broadly defined. This episode was edited by our awesome producer, Megan Cattell. Our website is newvoices.com, and you can also follow us on Twitter at New Voices and on Instagram at New Voices Network. We also have a Patreon crowdfunding account to support our events, podcast production, online magazine, and training, where patrons are invited to play an active role in our community. More information is available at patreon.com slash new voices. Thank you for joining us for our podcast today, and stay well. <laughs>